and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. I know a lot of parents, um, the parents of our graduates, you, you've gotten your, your, your high school students off to college, and uh, somebody was telling me they were up at UNR, and they were watching parents just kind of cry here and there, and they said, I was dancing. Um, <laughs> no, they, di- they didn't say that. Um, they, that's, I'm joking. But uh, anyway, I, that's kind of a fun picture in my head, just weepy parents, and somebody like, ha, ah, they're out of here. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, we don't want our kids to stay kids forever, right? You want them to grow up, mature, um, and... Uh, that's, that's part of who we want to be as Christians as well. We want to be growing in our walk with Jesus. And, and I, I, I know that different people from different backgrounds, you're in the room. Um, some of you, maybe you really don't know a whole lot about the Bible. Um, I'm probably going to say a few things this morning that you go, I don't know what that means. That's okay. Um, I would encourage you to maybe jot it down, ask a question later, maybe ask the person that you're sitting next to, what did he say? And if they go, I don't know, then you can both come ask me. Um, but uh, that, that's just p- kind of parting, part of understanding what's going on within the scriptures. You're going to be introduced to some new language, maybe some new ideas. Um, and that's okay, right? Um, and so if you're searching and you're wondering about wondering about who Jesus is, um, the book of Revelation, we're in chapter 7. This is a book that people view different ways. Last week I shared three of the four major views on, on how it's approached. Um, of the three of the four major views, three of them take a non-literal approach to the book and they view it as things that are either cyclical within church history or uh, took place in the past. And then one of those views looks at it in a future sense of these are things that are yet to happen. I'm going to approach the book of Revelation from that point of view, that these are future things that take place in a a seven-year period of time called the Great Tribulation. And so uh, that'll be the approach that I share with you. Also understand that some of you have a different viewpoint than that. Um, You you take some of the more non-literal views of of the book of Revelation um, and look at it more allegorical. That's okay. Um, I think one of the things, and I shared this last week, God did not give us the book of Revelation so we could fight with each other. I know that for sure. Um, he gave it to us so that we would have hope for the future. We would have an understanding that God's judgment of sin, uh, his wrath, his, his hatred, really, of sin um, and the, the hurt that it causes his creation is a very serious thing. Um, that this book would remind us that though God's wrath is a very serious thing, if you are in Christ, you are freed from God's wrath. Uh, Jesus Christ died on the cross so that the wrath that was due to us would be poured out on him. God's hatred of sin and the, the harm that we have done both to God and to each other. Jesus died to take God's wrath. And so if you have believed in Jesus's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, um, then, then you're saved. There's no condemnation. There's no wrath. Uh, when, when you approach God after this life, if you were to, if he were to come back today or you were to go home today, you were to pass on to the next realm, uh, the conversation that you would have with him, he's just going to say, I'm so glad you trusted my son, Jesus. I want to welcome you into this kingdom, this heaven, and I want to bless you with things that are beyond your imagination. Come on in. Um, If you don't know Jesus and you have not trusted uh, that his death on the cross took the wrath of sin 
from you. Uh, if you were to go home today, if you were to pass from this earth to the next realm, uh, the conversation that, that you would have with God would be a very different one. Um, it would be something along the lines of you saying, I'm going to accept the consequences of your wrath upon myself. Uh, I haven't trusted in Jesus to take this wrath off of me, and so I stand before you in a state of condemnation. I don't know if you've ever been in a court trial where somebody is declared guilty of something and they have to then pay the sentence for that guilt. That's, that's where you would be if you died today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You would be in a place of guilt and condemnation, ready to pay the consequences of the life that you've been leading in opposition towards God. But thanks be to God, you don't have to do that, right? And that's part of what the book of Revelation is here to remind us of, is that as God's followers, we're to proclaim this, that there is a gospel of peace, that you are before Christ, an enemy of God, but through Christ's blood shed for you and his resurrection from the dead, you're no longer an enemy, but you're an adopted son or daughter of the king. And not only that, he's going to then make you an ambassador to share this gospel of peace with the world, world around you. And so as we've gone through this book, we've seen scenes that go back and forth between heaven and earth. Uh, there's a, the, the key uh, kind of outline for the book is Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. And it says that uh, God, God tells, Jesus tells John that he wants to write the things which were, the things which are, and the things which are to come. Uh, Jake, if you wouldn't mind throwing up the, that outline there. There you go. And so when we looked at chapter 1, those were the things uh, that he had seen in the past, uh, the things which were during John's time. John the Apostle, uh, somebody that witnessed, uh, was an eyewitness of Jesus' entire ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, his ascension, his, his commissioning of the church. Um, John lived during the, the first century, and this is him declaring the things which were going on in the church at that point in time in chapters 2 through 3. The viewpoint that I'm going to share with you as far as a future understanding of these, these verses, um, a future thing taking place is we, we believe that, that God at the end of the church age will rapture or call up his church uh, that in the twinkling of the eye, the blink of an eye, uh, he will call us and we will be lifted into the clouds with him. And then that during following that, you have a seven year period of tribulation, three and a half years of peace under the Antichrist, uh, bringing an idea of a single world or order under a single leader. He's acting as uh, an, an alternative to the true Messiah, Jesus. Many people believe in him. Um, and then after that three and a half year period of peace, there are a series of judgments. And so we looked at uh, the, the seal judgments in chapter six last week. And now there's a little bit of a break before the seventh seal. And then we get through the seven trumpets. And so you have the seven year period of, of tribulation. At the end of that, we believe that Jesus will return and he will set up his literal thousand year reign, the millennial kingdom where he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. There'll be a thousand year period of peace at the end of that thousand year period of peace under Jesus. Um, then what the, so like what the Antichrist offered, Jesus actually brings about, right? As only God can. And, and then uh, at the end of that thousand year period, you have uh, the release of Satan, the second judgment. Um, and, uh, and then the, uh, the chapter 20 and 21 and 22, you have the new heaven and the new earth, which are completely redeemed and they have no sin, no death. None of those things exist. And so as you look at that outline, I also understand, like I just said, there are some of you that would look at this and go, I have a totally different outline for these events. And that's all 
right. We're not here to fight about this stuff. Um, I think it's good for you to understand different viewpoints. I, I, I'm doing my best to understand different viewpoints and read authors that maybe I wouldn't normally read as I go through this so that I can have uh, an understanding of the different viewpoints that uh, many Christians have had on the book of Revelation. Um, but what I'm going to do today is we're going to look at the ceiling of the 144,000 and the great multitude. And so, Jake, you can pull that thing down so people aren't thoroughly distracted. I do encourage you to open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7 if you haven't done that yet. And while you're doing that, um, at the end of chapter 6, there was this question that was asked. So you have these sealed judgments opened, and you have the four horsemen, and then the earth coming under intense persecution. Not just a certain area of the earth, but the entire earth under intense great tribulation, as Jesus would call it. Not persecution. We face persecution. This great tribulation is something different worldwide. Um, and at the end of it, there in Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, it says, the great day of their wrath, the lamb and the one seated on the throne, has come who is able to stand. And so that's the question that's asked at the end of chapter 6. And the answer to that, we're going to see here in chapter 7. Now, as you approach this, there's maybe a, a sort of way that you can look at this as, as how would I apply this to my life, okay? And so, uh, when, when the events of life knock you down, and, and anybody ever had this happen? Something happens in your family, something happens to yourself, uh, the world around you, but the events of life knock you down, what makes you able to stand? In a sense of the, the tribulation and the difficulty that you experience in your life, when that comes, how are you able to stand? What makes you able to stand? And perhaps the deeper question that this passage wants us to answer is that when you stand before the judge of the universe and he sets the course of your eternity, what would make you able to stand before him? Uh, will God's wrath be poured out on you? Or have you trusted that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus for you? Will you accept the, subst the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf? Or are you going to bear the consequences of your sin before God? I think that's one of the questions that this passage begs us to ask. But I think the other part that it's begging us to ask is when I face difficulty, what makes me able to stand? Okay? Let me pray and we'll look at this together. Father, this morning as we approach this passage of Revelation, one that uh, uh, we see you, set, you setting apart a group of people. They are, they are marked out as your own. Um, they're, they're very different because they're marked out as your own. Their, their lives are lived differently, and the words that they speak, this gospel of peace, is something that they're going to share on the earth during a time of intense tribulation, the great tribulation. We also recognize, God, that if we are in your son, Jesus, that you have marked us out as your own, that you have called us your own, and you have transformed us, and you have us here for the purpose of living lives that are very different from the world and the culture that we live in, because we're marked out as holy. We're clothed in your son, Jesus' righteousness, and so we think, and we talk, and we live differently. And the other thing that we do, God, is as your ambassadors, we proclaim this gospel of peace, that though once we were in enemies, your enemies, now we've been made your children. Not because we earned it or not because we deserved it, but because of your great love for us. And so, uh, God, as we see your great love for us and we see um, how you mark out your own and you save us from your wrath, I pray that we would have just a tremendous amount of thankfulness that we don't have to pay the consequences of our sin, that your son Jesus did it for us. 
and that we would proclaim this gospel of peace with boldness. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we get through the first six seals of this document that Jesus holds and no one's able to open. And uh, it has writing on the front and the back in chapter six. And we see that it's a, a deed. Uh, and and what, it's, what this deed is, is Jesus actually holds the, the, the course of history in his hands. And he's the only one that can bring about God's plans. And so he starts opening these seals, this judgment. He's the only one who is righteous to judge. And they are trying to figure out who's able to stand. And after this, in verse 1, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east, who had a seal, who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. So, as we read the book of Revelation, you need to understand kind of who the author is. John, uh, the apostle of Jesus, he's a very Jewish person. He thinks in Jewish ways. And Jewish people, they had a tendency to think in pictures. Like you and I, being raised in the West, we, unless you're an artist, in which case your mind is hard for me to understand. Um, but we tend to think in concrete ideas. Jewish people were more artistic. They thought in pictures, okay? And so as we go through this, there's a lot of pictures that are given to us. He says that he was restraining the wind so that no wind could blow on the earth. And if you're a literal person, you might go, wow, that would be nice because the wind blows a lot in Carson City. Um, but that's not what it is. It, it's, it's a Jewish way of talking about difficulty, this wind that is coming, the wind and the waves, the idea of uh, there being turbulence and things being whipped up. Uh, the other thing that he talks about is he says the sea or any tree. And when we, when we talk about that within Jewish literature, many times when you would see the word sea used, it was a Jewish way of talking about Gentile nations. They would say that a sea of people were against us, okay? And so he says that I don't want you to harm the sea. I don't want you to harm Gentile nations, okay? We're going to stop this wind from blowing, harming Gentile nations. Uh, and then he says, I don't want you to harm any tree. Now, a tree within the Bible, you have like the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You have the tree of life. Uh, you look at the Psalms and it says that God is actually going to plant us as a tree beside uh, a stream of living water and that we're actually gonna, then going to become a source of life. Jesus is referenced in Ezekiel chapter 17 as a tree that would be planted in Jerusalem and that every people and every tribe and every tongue could come to him and receive what they need. And so a tree is a picture of something where you go to get life, right? And so he says, I don't want you to harm the Gentile nations and I don't want you to harm those who are going to bring life during this time of the great tribulation until we have sealed this group of people, this group of, of servants. And then it says that he's going to seal them on their forehead. Now that might sound kind of weird. I don't know about you, but I'm not looking forward to a ball of wax on my forehead. Um, but he, he's going he's gonna to seal them on their forehead. And this is a picture that was, it's showing us that he, the, uh, he's going to mark them out as his own. In the ancient world, they would actually have a seal like this, kind of like a tattoo almost. Um, and it would be something that masters mark their slaves with. So you know who this person belonged to. Maybe a brand, um, some way of marking on them that they belong to a certain person. And so the imagery that's given here is he says, I want you to withhold this destruction uh, on, on the Gentile nations and on those who are going to bring peace during this period of, of the earth. I want you to hold on until we have sealed 
and I've marked out my own, okay? We're going to see that the, these people that he marked out, he's going to seal 144,000 of the nation of Israel. 12 tribes times 12,000 people, 144,000 people from the nation of Israel. Uh, the other thing that he's doing for this group of people that he's going to seal um, is that he is going to protect them, okay? So they're going to receive protection during this time. Much like when Noah was protected from the judgment uh, of the entire earth on the ark, God is going to protect this group of people. Much like uh, the Israelites were uh, protected from the plagues of Egypt, God is going to protect this group of people. Uh, Rahab and her household in Jericho, God is going to protect this group of people much like he did them during the time of the siege. Okay, And so he's, he's saying, hold on, wait for this seventh seal to open up before we do this. I'm going to say uh, that we need to seal, we need to mark out this group of people who are going to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. So when Jesus showed up, uh, and before him, John the Baptist, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus the Messiah. When Jesus showed up, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He was telling the Jewish people, and this is who he went to. He didn't go to Gentile people. He went to Jewish people, and he said, the gospel, the, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe, right? And so it was an offer to the Jewish people at that point in time that the kingdom uh, that they've been waiting for through the, the, the messianic promises to, to David under the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, those promises were available to them and they rejected it. The Jewish nation rejected it. Actually, before Jesus' crucifixion, he's looking at a, a tree and he tells this tree that it's cursed and that it's no longer going to bear fruit. And it was a picture of the nation of Israel because they had rejected the Messiah, and that he was then going to then transfer this gospel of the kingdom uh, in a spiritual sense to all nations, okay? And so that's what we live in. We live in this church age where the kingdom of God is present among us in a spiritual sense, but I don't know about you, uh, the kingdom is said to have streets that are paved with gold. I, I, I was reading a commentary, a guy lives in Jerusalem, he says our streets don't look like that. Um, there are things that haven't taken place yet that we still await, promises that are yet to be fulfilled, and many of them them were given to the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. And so this group of people, this 144,000, they're protected for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom during the great tribulation. Now, he says in verse 4, I heard the number I heard, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah, and then you go through the rest of the tribes, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin, 12,000 from each tribe numbering 12 tribes, 144,000 people. They're all named as Jewish. Now, one of the conversations that you'll get into if you were to maybe have a conversation with somebody that holds a, a different view than these being things that are future is they might say, uh, and this is a, a very common view, actually probably eight out of 10 churches hold the view that the church has replaced Israel, that the, God, that the promises that God made to the nation of Israel are being fulfilled during the church age with you and I. That's a very, it's probably eight out of 10 churches in the United United States would hold that view, okay? Um, and uh, and so the question is: Is this a symbolic or is it literal? Is the is 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 the are these twelve tribes and one hundred forty four thousand people? Is it symbolic? Is the church replacing Israel, or does 
God still have distinct plans for the nation of Israel. And I, I don't go for the, the non-literal view of this. I, I, I definitely look at this as God has a plan for Israel during the seven-year tribulation. Um, and and I'll t- there's three reasons that I'm going to list here, but there, there's, I could give you more. But the first one is it requires me to take a different approach to Scripture than I normally use. Um, in order for me to make this allegorical, I have to take my normal hermeneutic, the way that I approach the Bible and study it, language, history, and culture, what did the original writer intend for the original reader to understand, and then once I understand that, then I can apply it to my life. I actually have to do it different in order to get to that non-literal sense. And so I, I, I don't like doing that. I don't, there are times where you need to understand the Bible, uh, that, it's, that it's a book of poetry, or you need to understand that it's a history, or you need to understand uh, that it's an epistle, letter to the churches. Uh, this is prophecy. We want to be able to look at this through the lens of, of prophecy. Um, but in order for me to get to this being a, a picture or an icon or an allegory or any of those other non-literal literary devices, I, I have to ch- change my approach approach to the Bible, and I don't want to do that, okay? So that's really one of the first reasons that I, that I wouldn't go for this. Uh, the other reason is that if you go back into church history, and you look at the, the way that the, um, after, the, after the Jewish contingent of believers in the first and second century are primarily replaced with Gentiles, if you look at the writings of many of those Gentile leaders of the church, did you know that people aren't perfect, and there's no one perfect in this room? So the church has always had issues. And one of the issues that existed during that time period all the way through the reformers was anti-Semitism. It was very prevalent. You can read writings of different people, um, theologians that if I said your name, you'd, you'd go, oh, I know who that is. They, they held very strong anti-Semitic views. And so I think that one of the things that can happen with this view of the church replacing Israel is, is it because I've done good Bible study or is it because we, we had some anti-Semitism within the church and we think that the church replaces Israel. And I think that that's problematic. I really do. Um, and uh, the, the other one that I would say, and this is the main reason, is that if you look at Genesis 12, 15, and 21, you have the Abrahamic covenant and some of that Abrahamic com- covenant coming about. God makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to have land, seed, and blessing. Um, And the land has never been fully possessed in the history of the nation of Israel. It's never been fully possessed. The seed came about in in his son. Um, And then the blessing ultimately is something that we receive through Jesus, right? Um, But there are many parts of that Abrahamic covenant that have not been fulfilled. And so then you have to ask yourself, is God fulfilling these things symbolically? Is he a liar or are they future? I'm not going to go for number two, right? He's not a liar. So maybe they're symbolic. I tend to think they're things that he's going to fulfill in the future. He hasn't done it yet, but he's going to, okay? The other one is 2 Samuel chapter 7, and that's where you read about the Davidic covenant, that it is an everlasting covenant. Um, And so you either have to redefine the word everlasting or spiritualize it somehow. And so I have a hard time going for those views. Um, I'm giving you some of my reason why I say these things are future events, a literal seven-year period that is yet to come. God raptures the church. The tribulation takes place. Jesus returns for his second coming. Millennial kingdom. Judgment. New heavens and new earth. Right? I'm giving you some reason why. I think that that's the right view. But the other thing that I would say is that the Pharisees, they were so strongly opinionated about who the Messiah was going to be and what the Messiah had to do that they walked with him and they called him a sinner and a glutton, right? Like they were so convinced that their view of future things was the right view of future things that when God in the flesh walked before them, they killed him. 
right? And so when we come to our secondary theology, understanding future events and prophetic messages, we need to hold these things open-handed. I am perfectly happy with Jesus showing up later today and telling me that I'm wrong. <laughs> like, I am okay with that, right? That, that's just fine with me because he's God and I'm not. My thinking is finite and his is eternal. Um, and so I may have the right view of this. You may have a different view that's right. I'm not 100% sure, but I trust God, right? And I want to meet him and I can't wait for him to get here, right? Like that's the idea behind Jesus coming back. So I think that's really important as we approach this. Uh, one of the other questions, this is kind of a shift in gears. One of the other questions is that if you look at the 12 tribes of Israel, um, some of them are mentioned, 12 are mentioned here, and actually a couple are left out. Um, and so you have the original 12 tribes, um, and then at the end of Jacob's life, Isaac, he then brings two of his sons, his grandsons, he makes a covenant with them, and they kind of are viewed as a tribe themselves, replacing one of the other tribes. So you could say there's 12 tribes, you could say there's 13, some people would even say 14. Um, and so you go, well, what's, what's going on with these tribes? One of the commentators says, Scripture's, Scripture contains 29 lists of tribes of the tribes of Israel in the Old and New Testaments, and in no case are more than 12 mentioned. The tribe omitted is usually Levi, from which the priesthood came. Inasmuch as it is normal to have only 12 and not 13 tribes, the omission of Dan is not significant. That's the tribe that's left out here, is Dan. Perhaps Dan was omitted because he was one of the first tribes to commit idolatry. However, Dan is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 2, as in the millennial land distribution. And so what you come to a conclusion is, is as God's promises to all of the tribes is going to take place. But they usually list 12 instead of 13, a dozen instead of a baker's dozen, because that was kind of their way of saying this is the complete number. Okay, And so you'll read different lists where different tribes, and the reason it's different is because it's their way of saying this is kind of our way of talking about the complete nation of Israel. All right. So that's kind of a side note, but one that people will ask that question. All right. And so we have these 144,000 people. They're sealed by God. They're set apart as his own. They're marked out as his own. They're going to live a different life. They're going to proclaim the gospel of peace. They're Jewish in their background and, and uh, nationality. And then it says, after this, verse 9, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes. Whenever we, re we read white robes in, uh, in Revelation, um, he's not calling for a toga party. Um, whenever we read that, they're clothed in, in Christ's righteousness. That's the picture, is that if you see white robes, these are people that have been given Jesus's person and work, and it's been imputed, put on them. So they, they're standing there righteous. So they're in white robes, and they have palm branches in their hands. Now, palm branches, this is another important thing where we go back and we understand John's a Jewish person. He's thinking in Jewish ways. Palm branches were a very Jewish symbol. Actually, many of the coins that we have from the, that are minted by the, the, the nation of Israel have palm branches on them, and they're a symbol of peace, but they're also a symbol of messianic kingship, right? When Jesus does his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, they lay down palm branches. And it was their way of saying that this is the Messiah and King that we have been waiting for. All right. And so they're standing around the throne and they have Christ's righteousness. They have palm branches representing peace and Jesus's kingship. And they cry out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, 
and along with the elders and four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So you move from this group of Jewish people, marked out for the purpose of proclaiming the... the uh, the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of peace during the tribulation to a group of Gentile people. Now this is a scene that is in heaven. He's marking out the Jewish people on the earth. This vast multitude is in heaven. We meet this group again later on in the book of Revelation. Um, and what we understand about them is that they are tribulation saints. They're people who have trusted in the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of Jesus. They've been saved and they're martyred for their faith during that period. And so they've gone through this, this persecution this tribulation, they've lost their lives and they now stand around the throne along with the angels and along with the elders. Uh, we talked about this before, elders being representative of uh, saints throughout the ages, ages, the four living creatures being um, angelic beings that are always seen with uh, God's throne room and his presence. They're, they're guarding and manifesting his glory as, as he pushes it through them, so to speak. Um, and uh, and they're, they're worshiping, they're saying salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And then they have this sevenfold uh, doxology or uh, worship of the Father. And if you were with us in Revelation chapter 5, they did the same thing for the Lamb. They had a sevenfold worship or doxology of who Jesus is. And what's interesting is they're, they're the same except for one word. Um, uh, blessing, glory, wisdom, honor, uh, power and strength are both listed of the Father and of the Son. Riches are listed of Jesus and thanksgiving is taken out and replaced for the Father. So that's pretty interesting. We understand that Jesus is the source of, of spiritual riches. He is the one who blesses us. Um, but we also recognize that the Father is the one who has given these to Jesus and so we say thank you to him. Okay. Um, and so there's this idea uh, and so like, like secondary thought, theology, I can hold this loose with you. I believe in a futurist view of the book of Revelation. Maybe you view uh, it in a more idealistic sense or in a, in a historic sense, whatever the case may be. When it comes to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we got to be on the same page with this. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. We, we saw the seven lampstands around the throne being representative of the Spirit. Uh, Holy Spirit's ministry on the earth. So within this throne room, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, all in one. Now that is beyond our comprehension. How can three be one? Uh, and, and people have used different imagery throughout the years. You know, you got a clover. It has those three separate leaves, but it's still just one clover. And you have those types of imageries that people give you. But the fact of the matter is this is bigger than our brains, okay? And that's part of God. He is bigger than us, and we need to be okay with that. Um, and, and you don't have to question everything. He can handle your questions, but he's bigger than us, right? And so I think those are some areas where we say, well, yeah, I can hold my secondary theology in a loose fashion, but when it comes to the Trinity of God, when it comes to the deity of Christ, when it comes to Jesus's literal death on a cross, that wasn't just something that's a story. He actually died on the cross for the consequences of my sin. He was actually born of a virgin. He was actually sinless. He was truly both God and man, died on a cross, was literally risen from the dead three days later, literally appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses over the course of 40 days, literally committed 
commissioned his apostles. Those are all actual, historical, verifiable events. We need to be on the same page with those things. If you come to me and you say, yeah, I don't know about Jesus' deity. Well, you're not a Christian, right? Because Christians believe in the deity of Christ. If you say, I'm not, I don't believe in the Trinity. Well, you're, then, then you've left Christian doctrine because Christians believe in the, in the Trinity of God. Right? And so these are things, when it comes to the nature of God, the work of Christ, these are things that we don't, like, know. I'm not doing it. And anybody that, that, that balks at those things, they're outside of Orthodox Christian thought. Um, and I would say that their salvation is in question. All right? It's not impossible, but it's in question. And so those are things that we don't budge on. But when it comes to the nature of God, He deserves blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength. It goes to Him forever and ever. And then it says, Amen, let it be so. Now, when we looked at the, the worship of Jesus in chapter 5, and I think that this point is worth making again, when we, when we understand who God is, and we understand what God has done, and you see him in this way, that every blessing comes from him. All glory belongs to him. All wisdom belongs to him. We should be thankful for what he's done. We should honor him. We should recognize that he holds all the power, and that all the strength for this life that we need comes from him. You look at him that way, um, that means that I should probably... Submit my will to him. Um, actually, Paul talks about this in, in Romans chapter 12. He says that, that our rational work of service is that we would offer our bodies to God. That we would renew our minds. And then once we've renewed our minds on who God is and what he has done, that we would say, God, I belong to you. My will is subject to what you want. I don't call the shots. You do. And it's not that you cease to have a will when you're a Christian. Like, there's no magic pill. You don't stop wanting things, but you do make a decision to say, what I want is no longer my decision. I want what you are teaching me to want, God. Right? I want, I want whatever course you offer, whatever path you have me walk, whatever difficulty that I approach in life, I am in submission to you and your will because you know better than me. Because it turns out that blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength and riches, they all come from you. I don't have any of those things in and of myself, but I have all of them when I'm in fellowship with you because they belong to him. And he can then bless us with them. And so this is something that as you enter the Christian walk, or maybe you're here and you're just hearing about Jesus for the first time, this isn't something that you just sort of add to the side. Like when you, when you follow Jesus, it's a statement of, I laid down my old way of life where I called the shots. I trust that you have saved me from the consequences of calling the shots in the past and being my own little G God. And now I'm going to offer my life to you as you are my Lord, and I'm going to trust your spirit to empower me. I don't do this on my own or for my own benefit. I do this in your strength and for your namesake. Like that's why I live. If I take a breath of oxygen, I want it to be for that. If my heart beats, I want it to be for that. My will and who I am as an individual, I give to you, God, because you have purchased me, because you are the, the one true maker and creator of everything, I give my life to you and I don't call the shots anymore. I don't stand before you cross-armed, mad, but instead I say, God, what do you want me to do in this situation in my life? How do you want to use me? I'm yours. And that's not that easy. And that's why the scripture consistently gives us reminders about God's character and his work. 
Because if you get your eyes off of God's character and his work and onto something else, you will stumble. I don't care if you've been following Jesus for a year or 40 years. If you get your eyes off of God's character and his work and onto something else, you will fall on your face. Because he is the one that can, he's the only one that makes us able to stand in the trials of life. He's the only one that gives us purpose in the trials of life. Like you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and it says that we go through all these different things, and he says that the point of going through difficulty in life is so that the life of Jesus would be manifested through us. So if I go through difficulty, if I face trial, if I go through tribulation, if someone in my family makes decisions that, that, that I don't love and they end up harming them, themselves, if, if I make a bonehead move and blow it and have to pay the consequences of it, if just the world that I live in is kind of stinky, and it is, and I have to pay the consequences for that, I'm going to trust that God has a purpose for it. Right? Like if, if the idea of being a Christian to you is I follow Jesus and everything gets comfortable, you're going to get let down. For sure, you're going to get let down because it will not be comfortable. Now, God does promise us comfort. He does not promise that we will be comfortable. So what's the difference? Uh, the, the idea of the promise of comfortable is I'm going to get everything that I want. There'll never be difficulty. Everything's just going to be smooth sailing. The promise of giving us comfort is no, you will go through difficulty. Jesus says in John 15 that if they hated him, they'll hate us. If the world hates, if you were loved by the world, or if you love the world, it would love you back. But since you love Jesus, the world doesn't love you back. And so you're going to have difficulties. It's going to happen. And the point behind those difficulties is so that God could develop in us proven character so that he could give us hope and so that we would have his life manifested through us for the purpose of his glory. You don't live this life. I don't live this life for myself. It's not about me. But there is one who deserves to have my life live for him. And I'm telling you, like, this is so counter to the culture that you live in. Everything in our culture says it's about you. You do you. Get what you want. Like, it's so egocentric and kind of gross if you're honest with yourself. Because when you're focused on yourself, what do you do? You're selfish. You hurt others. And what God is calling us to do is instead to live our lives for him. And if we live our lives from him, do you understand that then he's going to make us live our life like Jesus lived his life? Have you read the Gospels? Uh, you want to live a life that matters, then allow God to form his desires in you so that you can live like Jesus. Because then you're not going to be selfish, but instead you'll be selfless and you'll pour out your life as an offering to God and a blessing to others. And so this is what Christianity is truly calling us to. And we need this reminder because tribulation, trial, difficulty, persecution, it's coming. The other thing that we see here is that this is all nations. So it says that there's, there's people from every tongue and tri every nation. Um, all the angels, this vast multitude, they worship the Lamb. We see them again in Revelation 20, verse 4. And the other thing I want you to get is that God's plan has always been to save people from all nations, then to clothe them in Christ's righteousness, and to make them ambassadors of his peace. Like, that's always been God's plan. When he called out the nation of Israel, he said that you're going to be holy as I am holy, Christ's righteousness, and you're going to be a light unto the 
nations. You're going to be ambassadors to the world around you. That was God's purpose. And now he has the church doing the same thing, that we'd be clothed in Christ's righteousness and that we'd be a light to our neighbors and to the nations around us so that people look at what, what, what God is doing in us and say, I want some of that. And then we step up and we say, here's how you have it. Right? We live our lives in a different fashion, and then we speak the truth about the gospel of Jesus. This has always been his plan. Now, this time during the Great Tribulation, John is a little confused in verse 13. And so one of the elders asks John, Who are these people in white robes, and where do they come from? And John answers, I don't know, sir, but you know. Then he told me, these are ones coming out of the great tribulation. They are washed, they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So we see that they are martyrs during this time. They're giving their lives for Jesus. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so while Jesus promises us tribulation in this life, he promises us complete comfort and salvation in him in the next life. And so these people, they're, they're tribulation era martyrs. Um, it's pretty clear in verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The words that John uses here are right out of Isaiah chapter 4 and 49. And what they do is they tell a time when God will protect his people from hunger, thirst, and the heat of the sun, just as Revelation 17, 6 says. This time and place to fulfill his promises of both Jew and Gentile uh, in a place without tribulation is in the heavenly realm. This is something that is true uh, when we exit this world and move to the next. That phrase, you ever hear somebody say, so-and-so passed away. Uh, it's actually a biblical phrase, and it means to transition from one place to another. When we say someone has passed away, it means they've moved from this realm on the earth to a new realm in Christ, the heavenly realm, outside of Christ, Hades, awaiting judgment. Okay? And so that's what we do when we pass away. We either go into the heavenly realm where there's no judgment, we're no longer experiencing the trials and tribulation of this life, or if we're not in Christ, we go to a different realm known as Hades where we await the final judgment. I pray that you do not wait for salvation, but instead you call on the name of Jesus today if you've not done so. And for those of us who know him, that we are grateful for what he has done. Uh, when, we, when we talk about this without tribulation in, in, a, in a place, uh, the heavenly realm, no such promise was true of life on earth in the old or new covenant. In fact, Jesus, like I told you earlier, promises, guarantees tribulation while we follow, follow him on the earth. Uh, the apostles encourage us to endure hardship, uh, to go through it with endurance, thankfulness, holy conduct, and gospel proclamation. Uh, in Romans chapter 5 actually says that we delight, we take joy in our tribulations because tribulations bring endurance. They cause us to be stronger. That strength then brings about proven character, not my character, but Christ's character in me. And as Christ's character in me is developed deeper and deeper, it gives me a sense of hope that I could never have on my own. Uh, do you know the story of your own? transformation, who you were and who you are, you look back over the course of your life as a Christian and you go, boy, I would never want to be 21 again. 
or whatever. You know, I, I, would, I would never want to go back to that time because I see what God has done in me and that's the hope that I have, that the Spirit of God living inside me is transforming me bit by bit, day by day, day, by day year by year, decade by decade, and as time goes by, I live in a way that is more and more like Jesus, not because of me, but because of him. Uh, the other thing that we, we know is that uh, if you were to read those verses in 1 Peter chapter 3, his point there in 1 Peter, uh, the whole book really, is that if you're going through a time of tribulation and persecution because of the, the area that you live, I want you to have holy conduct and I want you to proclaim Jesus' name. Like that's the message over and over again. He writes to a church that's under persecution. He says, I want your conduct to be holy, the way that you speak, the way that you uh, think, the way that you act. I want it to be different. And, and we want it to be like Jesus. I want it to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and I want you to proclaim what God has done for you. He says, if you're going through tribulation, that's what you're supposed to do. Holy conduct, gospel proclamation. Like, it's pretty simple. Um, and so they, they encourage us, the apostles, um, they do that time and again. Jesus did the same. And so uh, we recognize that if you're a follower of Jesus, that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and you've been set apart as God's own, part of God's own people. You belong to you and I belong to him. Like the 144,000, God has marked out his own in every age of history, and they are called to be his faithful witnesses, declaring his greatness and love, and I would say the gospel of peace, in their lives through both word and deed. Uh, the other thing that, that you have to see here is the promise that God has for those who go through tribulation. Right? They're going to stand around the throne and see what God has done, who God is, and be in awe and blessing of what he gives them. And so back to our original, original question, when the wrath, day of wrath comes, who is able to stand? The answer is those marked out by God as his own. They are under his protection. They are saved from wrath, and they are called according to his purpose. And so as you hear this, who are you? Are you called out? Are you marked as God's own? Have you trusted that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he did so for you? He went there for the purpose of all humanity, but he went there for you so that he could take the wrath that is due to us, due to you, due to me, and we would never stand before God and experience his wrath because it was poured out on Christ. Do you understand that there's a God who's very serious about sin? Like it's not just some casual flippant thing. It's not just something that we should kind of let be a part of our lives. Uh, like God is calling us to holy conduct. And in our own strength and ability, we, we can never do it. And so we need a Savior. And then we need someone who can make us his own. And then we need someone to empower us. And Jesus has saved us. He's made us his own. And he's empowered us. He's given us purpose. He lays ahead of us a hope that no one can take away from us. Like all of these things should be strong motivations. If you're not a Christian, to go, I think I need Jesus. I need a savior. I need somebody to mark me out as his own, to, to bless me and to, to care for me, to, to give me purpose and to empower me to live a life that is so much better than I could on my own. And if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, what an opportunity to remember who God is, what he's done. What an opportunity as we read this book, we go through Revelation, to have your mind recalibrated on what is true. Because you're going to go out, and you're going to get in your workplace, you're going to watch TV, you're going to spend time on social media, you're going to do all these things, and your mind's going to get a little bit muddied by the world. And we need to come back to God's word and recalibrate again and again. Who is he? What has he done? How should I live? Who is he? What has he done? 
How should I live? He deserves that. And quite honestly, it's the most sensible thing we could do based upon who he is and what he's done. Pray with me. Father, this morning we are grateful for who you are. We are grateful for your love. We are thankful that your justice is something that has been satisfied, but not because I've paid the consequences, but because your son Jesus has taken them for me. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died that death on that cross, that you were capable and able, that your sacrifice was sufficient to pay for the consequences of sin, and that you did so. I trust you. I give my life to you. I call you my God and my Lord. And thank you, Jesus, that you rose from the dead to make me a new creation. Your spirit indwells me and empowers me so that I can live a life that is not of my own, but, but it's of you. And so thank you for tribulation. Thank you for difficulty because it's an opportunity for you to develop your character in me and for me to be a light to those around me. We praise you right now for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.